Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. Last episode, we completed our geography tour and climate 101. This episode, we're moving forward into the early Stone Age, as it's known, and much of our story covers the period after the last age, which ended 10,000 years ago. Prior to this, the oceans had subsided as ice covered much of the world, leading to the coastline along the Indian and Atlantic seaboards of South Africa moving around 100 kilometers out to sea beyond today's beaches. That poses a challenge as we investigate origins of man and woman on the subcontinent. Much of the archaeological evidence is now under hundreds of feet of sea way offshore. We do have some material inland as well as the shellfish middens that began to appear much later in the record, which allows us to piece together an increasingly accurate picture of what was going on. South Africa's prehistory has been divided into a series of phases based on broad patterns of technology. The primary distinction is between a reliance on chipped and flaked stone implements, which is referred to as the Stone Age, and begins around 2.5 million years ago. That's the early Stone Age, obviously. The Middle Stone Age starts 150,000 years ago and ends around 30,000 BC, while the Late Stone Age ends only 2,000 years ago. That is when new people arrived in South Africa who had the ability to smelt iron weapons and tools The Iron Age had arrived with these farmers from Central Africa. The first peoples of the region predated both the San and Khoi, and of course we have no clear idea about their language, but we do have mitochondrial DNA evidence and cultural artifacts. First, let's consider hunter-gatherers who foraged along the seashore for shells and fish and cooked seafood over fire, the original people of this land. And there are lots of hollowed-out caves along the southeastern coastline of South Africa. Many were extended and improved by the people living in them. These caves, a lot of them in sea cliffs, some high above the sea level, provided an extremely safe environment against both the enemy and predators. And it was in this relatively warm environment that newborn babies could stay in the crib for at least one year without having to fend for themselves. Thus, it's believed that modern humans started to deliver helpless infants kept safely in these crevices. Human language was developing at the same time. Specialists say it's plausible that the frequent use of the tongue to produce a click contributed to the unique mandible of modern humans. As I explained last episode, the most diverse range of sounds humans make is by those who speak the San and original Khoi languages, which leads linguists to summarize. This diversity indicates these are directly linked to the earliest languages spoken by any human. There is much technical evidence for this, so I won't bore you with the exhaustive details. Let's just say that clicks and a syllable that follows is thought to be the original way we spoke as humans. Once syllables began to be used with vowels, only the Khoisan kept clicks as they were surrounded by the world, you know, named by click-based concepts, while those who actually walked away or left southern Africa abandoned clicks as they developed other phenomes, as they called To put it another way, phenomes are sounds that represent objects and actions they have meaning. Then tools of a certain type emerged at the same time and first identified at a place called Howison's Port. It's a small rock shelter on a hill on the main road into Grahamstown from Port Elizabeth. Howison's Port gave the name to tools linked to the Middle Stone Age, which lasted 5,000 years, between roughly 65,800 before present and 59,500 before present. 
This period is important as together with the Still Bay period, 7,000 years earlier than that, provides the first evidence of human symbolism and technological skills anywhere in the world. Over the past three decades, Southern Africa has witnessed major archaeological discoveries, highlighting the uniqueness and significance of this part of the world in understanding how human societies transformed during the late Pleistocene. Another product linked to the hunter-gatherers over 6,000 years ago, which made a sudden appearance, is ochre. The red paste and powder was transported over long distances, and there was an entire industry for this product discovered in southern Africa. The way in which ochre was worked inside caves gives us a clue as to what was going on. Red ochre and ostrich eggshell beads were used to make headbands, waistbands, girdles, bracelets, necklaces, anklets, and so on. Thus, we must understand the emergence of key adaptions which emerged in this part of Earth where foraging was being replaced by organized hunting. Language developed from this need along with cultural adornments and the use of ochre as well as sea and ostrich eggshells. People began wearing ostrich eggshell beads, but did they don the beads for symbolic or cultural reasons or even religious? We don't know. What we do know is that the diameter and size of these beads changes through southern Africa and it's thought that different clans of the forefathers and mothers of the San and Khoi displayed their origin through this differentiation. Some were large, others small, and they correspond to regions. We don't have time in this series to delve more deeply into these theories because so much is unknown and speculative, although backed up by science. But the caves we've unearthed and excavated reveal quite a bit. For example, a cave site near the Eilenkras River on the southeast Cape Coast was located on the border zone between the coastal plain and the hilly hinterland some seven kilometers from the coast. That site is sheltered from prevailing summer winds and rain-bearing winter winds. It's located on the top of the hill. Using our imagination at this point, we could understand how the people dwelling in this cave looked out on those animals foraging in the valley below. About 6,000 before the present, the temperature in the Southern Cape was around 1 to 2 degrees higher than today, which we know from the vegetation record. We have also found tortoise carapace bowls and a large amount of ochre in the Eilenkras cave, which suggests such items were possibly also used in other symbolic ways, such as maybe arranging marriages, during initiation rites, or in various rituals such as curing dancers. When we summarize all the facts, we can argue that people in the Southern Cape possibly started to become more conscious about the quality of raw materials and their cultural artifacts. People in these caves were becoming far more territorial, with evidence that unlike the previous periods, they were not moving at different times of year based on weather and temperature. They had become more static on the landscape. Bone awls, for example, indicate tools we think were pierces and needles and were probably used to make leather clothing at these sites. Clothes were also painted with ochre and decorated with shell or ostrich eggshell pendants. Shells of a sea snail called Turbo Sarmaticus were finely worked as art, while ostrich eggshell beads were decorated with colors including ochre. Some of the many adzes found may have been used to make arrow shafts. The southern Cape 6,000 years ago was relatively densely populated by people, which is not a well-known fact. The increased production of valuable ornaments and color pigments could mean a more intensified ritual and symbolic period in this time. They ate mammals and snakes of various types, as well as an array of shellfish. These included sea snails, limpets, mussels, and crayfish. The fish being consumed included various forms of bream, such as striped bream, which account for nearly a third of all the fish bones at some of the sites around the southeast Cape. 
while stumpnose was also on the menu, and a whole range of other fish. Birds were also consumed, but archaeologists believe that most were harvested for their bones and feathers, which were then used in clothing and for display. Of course, further inland, at Malikani Rock Shelter in the Maloti Drakensberg Mountains of Highland Lesotho, there is a wonderful archaeological sequence stretching back to at least 80,000 years ago. It's one of the earliest known examples of a sustained human presence in high mountain systems anywhere on the planet. These hunter-gatherer societies, which lasted tens of thousands of years, were going to find their lives changed inexorably from around 2,000 years ago. That is when sheep and then cattle, as well as domesticated plants including sorghum and millet, first spread to southern Africa. They were brought into the region by people who migrated from the north, from central and central west Africa. By analysing the remains, we have a much more accurate picture of what daily life was like than you'd expect, considering we don't have any written evidence. The evidence, however, is written in the science of archaeology. And so some of these hunter-gatherer units were transformed into a mixed society as the pastoralists and farmers spread. Others retained their ancient ways. These new people also brought new ideas. The herders, and to be technical, these are people who maintain domestic stock and are mostly mobile, moving from grazing area to grazing area. Pastoralists and farmers, on the other hand, are more sedentary and mix agriculture with the use of domestic animals. This differentiation will become clearer as we go along the journey together. But it is crucial because the history of South Africa followed a trail based on the interaction between these types of people. Clearly, when the first farmers arrived 2,000 years ago or so, there was a steady replacement of hunters and gatherers by these more fixed clans and tribes. They also lived alongside each other. This we know from the archaeological evidence. Food production around 2,000 years ago marks a major change in South African history. Prior to this time, as we've heard, there's a broad cultural continuity within hunter-gatherer societies that goes on for probably hundreds of thousands of years. In the eastern savannah summer rainfall regions of South Africa, various new technologies appear at this time. In the west, there are the residues for sheep and a range of stylistically similar thin-walled ceramic pots. This represents the movement of Khoikhoi pastoralists into the western and southern regions 2,000 years ago. Prior to this time, there is no record of domesticated plants and animals in southern Africa. As archaeologist Simon Hall, writing in the Cambridge History of South Africa, explains, this does not imply that hunter-gatherers were socially passive. A strategic flexibility is demanded when you're living off the land, particularly with the hunter-gatherer sand able to live in extremely different environments and off different foods. In 1984, I had the fortune of spending a month near Craddock in South Africa's Eastern Cape province working with Professor Hall, who needed students to help at an archaeological dig at a small cave in a steeply rising kopi alongside a small stream at a place called Waterfall. There was great excitement as one of the diggers unearthed sand ostrich eggshell beads. As we sifted through the material, it was believed we were down to the period of possibly the 1300s. We were shocked later when carbon dating dated the shells to 400 or 500 AD. This experience was humbling, as you can imagine, picking up a tiny eggshell that last saw daylight or use over 1,500 years earlier is quite a thrill. We also found bones from many types of animals in the hearth area of this cave. They were fishing, hunting, gathering, and possibly fighting off leopards. Just surviving. This kind of lifestyle stretched back 
at least 100,000 years, as I say, and that's in the archaeological record and requires a level of social interactivity that's advanced in terms of human evolution. What needs to be stressed is the concept of highly developed cognitive problem-solving. Author Jared Diamond has written a great deal about this, pointing out that the fastest thinkers he ever met are people who live in the highlands of New Guinea and still use stone tools. Their ingenuity is legendary because they need to be nimble-minded to stay alive, whereas folks who live in big cities rely on systems to feed, clothe, and keep them safe. If you want to take that analogy a little further, witness what happened in Texas in 2021 when the power failed in the middle of a cold snap. Millions of people had no idea how to keep themselves and their loved ones warm. They wanted politicians to help them. They could not help themselves. That's amazing stuff, isn't it? So Hall and others postulate hunter-gatherers were extremely flexible when it came to these new Bantu people arriving from the north, bringing their millet and sorghum for planting. As we'll hear later, their relationship was complex and in some cases involved a form of slavery or servitude, and in others they integrated. Thus, we now have Isikosa and Zulu cliques, where the linguistic ancestors of both languages have no cliques at all. So in the East and South Africa, mixed farming emerged, while in the West, most were nomadic herders. We have unearthed tools and other objects to show the Eastern mixed farming took place slightly later than the Western herder pastoralist developments. By the first millennium AD, there's a broad package of changes showing migration was taking place with new ideas flowing into South Africa. The other really important change taking place was in terms of climate. Tending crops and managing animals is constrained by rainfall and the ecology. We have discovered that the earliest farmers' settlements were underpinned by a reliance on sorghum and millet. While these grains are hardy, they do need rainfall. These communities can be tracked in their journey all the way back to what is known as the Sahelian Belt, which is an area south of the Sahara that is semi-desert in type, and that's where these foods originated. We also believe that the sheep and goats that eventually arrived in South Africa were brought by these earliest peoples who came from East Africa while the cattle from North Africa. The other major technology that arrived with them was iron and pottery. We also know that pottery was likely to have originated from North Africa where it has a much longer history and we can trace pottery use down to the south in a consistent manner. Remember, we've heard how migrations in Africa have taken place in various directions at different times, and the people moving south had moved with cattle, pottery, and iron implements. And this movement was not some sort of flood of mindless barbaric hordes, as has been portrayed by some. By the 1960s, radiocarbon dating had become more accurate, and the narrative that Bantu speakers had arrived in South Africa at the same time as the Portuguese, then the Dutch, in other words, around the 15th century, we now know was wrong. As I've said in earlier podcasts, bias and historical analysis leads to glaring inaccuracies which time tends to expose. This happens over and over. Look at the writings of the Romans when they were confronted by the English tribes. These were described as savages with no redeeming qualities. Archaeology, however, has allowed us to discover that these Romans were biased and driven by propaganda. The Brits had advanced rituals and were proficient farmers and metal workers. They were not all blue-painted cannibals. So in South Africa, early farming residues in the summer rainfall area show the remains of wattle and daub huts in sedentary homesteads, where cereal and animal domestication, pottery and iron artifacts, metalworking debris, 
and cultural items from 250 AD can be found. This general cultural and economic homogeneity can also be followed in terms of language and advanced DNA testing. What does this all mean? Well, it means the appearance of farming and Bantu speakers in South Africa occurred at the same time. And there's a wonderful correlation with investigations to the northeast towards Malawi and Kenya and northwest towards Angola. We know they are linked because of pottery. The same kinds of design and usage occurred through time in a chronologically linked direction. Earlier forms of the same pottery have been unearthed in the northwest, while earlier forms of the same metalworking in the northeast. In fact, archaeologists, of course, have a name for it, the Chivumbazi complex. It stretches in a kind of V-shape from close to the Congo River, heading diagonally southeast to the Limpopo River, and the other part of the V starting from the Rift Valley north of Kenya through the Zambezi southwestly to join with the Angolan strain around the Limpopo as well. If you head to desmondlatham.blog, you'll find a map of the Chifumbazi complex. Remarkably, African oral tradition actually echoes the science. For example, oral historian Credo Mutwa spent years noting down these stories of ancient South Africa in his wonderful book called Indaba, My Children. It's full of embellishments and dragons and monsters, and the timing is based on almost an Old Testament succession of heroes and villains. Much of the story takes place around the Limpopo River and then southwards in northern Zululand, and his stories belie many scientific discoveries. So, back to the pottery. As usual, scientists and historians argue about exactly how the Chufumbazi complex came to be, and in some respects, we probably will never know. The important fact is the first farmers arrived in South Africa around 2,000 years ago and began working the land instead of just hunting and gathering on it. Our knowledge of this pottery culture is quite extensive these days. There are hundreds of dissertations from scientists around the world focusing on these clay objects in the same manner as classicists focus on Roman and Greek pottery. From these, we can trace both origin and distribution. As with language and DNA, Pottery forms a forensic trail that is not arbitrary. It's organized. It is deeply embedded, shared, and expressed. Codes and signals are baked into that pottery, as with others in North Africa and the classic Greek period, or ancient England, for that matter. Humans don't adorn objects without sense. There is reason behind ornate messages inscribed on the sides of shards of pottery. The stylistically homogeneous Shivumbazi complex pottery is linked to the distribution of Bantu languages, but how they're linked is a very complex question. There is no written document from the period beginning to explain. What we can say is this. The terms used on these shards of pottery for ironworking, cereal production and tool use, as well as Eastern Bantu language generally, borrow heavily from the central Sudanic and languages of the Eastern Sahel, That's the semi-desert area north of the equator that ties us together. There is some linguistic evidence that the conduit for livestock terms in these eastern Bantu languages was actually through the Khoi, who in turn picked up these terms, as well as domesticated dogs and cattle, from Sudanese-speaking people who had travelled south. But there is one big question we're grappling with. What encouraged the expansion of mixed farmers to the south? Could it have been localized environmental degradation or a drying period? The addition of iron from the north began showing up around Lake Victoria at the same time as mixed farming, and some say this gave our ancestors the ability to shape and domesticate the landscape itself. To chop down the trees, for example, 
or to hoe rocks out of a field. DNA testing has helped enormously to answer some of the when and where questions, but not the why. Most mitochondrial DNA linkages in southern Bantu speakers are derived from either West or East Africa. As I've explained with the Isikosa and Zulu languages, there was some cultural assimilation of San and Khoi as these farmers and pastoralists spread to the south. There is a direct association between the appearance of the Chifumbasi ceramics and Northeast Africa, for example. So, this is where we must end for the episode as farming starts, so to speak. Next episode, we'll look at the sequence of these changes, which takes place as phases with quite extraordinary developments. The first phase is called the Silver Leaves, dating 250 AD to 430 AD, and is the earliest example of mixed farming. The second phase is called the Mzunjani, dating between 420 AD and 580 AD, and examples of these settlements can be found in coastal areas of KwaZulu-Natal. They are incredibly interesting historical places that are easily accessible. I'm looking forward to visiting a few more when lockdown rules ease more, of course. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination, and you can send me a message through desmondlatham.blog or on Twitter at deslatham. Until then, stay safe.